Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Sometimes what should be a no-brainer winds up being a rocket science. Case in point, my guest today. Melanie Bro has been the web and social media specialist for Conversations with Creative Women since 2015. And during that time, she has done one hell of a job promoting and highlighting the amazing women that we've had the pleasure and honor of meeting, whether it's her clever posts, tweets, or managing the website, editing guests' blogs, and the CWCW newsletter that she single-handedly writes, edits, and distributes several times a year. But there's much more to Melanie than her expertise in the field of social media. Her professional life also includes social justice, supporting nonprofit organizations as they build their profiles and expand their reach to include new groups. And to that end, she is the manager of strategic communications and partnerships at the Center for Effective Public Policy, a national criminal justice organization. Her resume also includes her work as communications manager at the Association for Neighborhood and Housing Development a member-led organization of community groups across New York City working to win affordable housing and promote thriving, equitable neighborhoods for all New Yorkers. Melanie has a degree in journalism from Ithaca College and a master's in urban policy and planning from Hunter College in New York City. So let's meet and get to know this mover and shaker. I'm so excited to say, Melanie, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. You know, I always hear the guests say, like, it's so weird to, like, hear their bios read back to them. And I have never actually experienced that until now. So it is, in fact, a very weird feeling. (laughs) You know, so many times it's as if I made it up. I mean, you gave me the information. But how often is it that people just rattle that stuff off and then you can see, well, geez, I didn't know. or I didn't remember that. Or I'm a lot more impressive than I thought I was. (laughs) But like I do with most women, Melanie, let's go back in time. When you were going to school, when you were looking to go to college, and I said you majored in journalism, in terms of what? What did you see yourself doing back in the day professionally? It's funny. My interest in journalism actually came from a conversation between me and my mom, My mom and I were trying to figure out, you know, what I would want to go to college for, what I was interested in. And, you know, she knew that I really loved writing. And she also knew that I loved talking to people. I was always a very outgoing kid. I was (laughs) putting on, like, little musical performances for my family. (laughs) They were very good. Okay. Uh (laughs) Yes. So she knew that I really loved talking to people, um, and she was the one who actually suggested journalism as a way to marry the two, pretty much. And my mom had attended Emerson College in Boston Mm -hmm. for English, but they, as some people might know, have a really good communications program. And so I was really dead set on going to Emerson. I even like tried to do early admission. I'm old enough to remember the days when um, college applications could be turned in in paper and not um, uh, electronically. So I remember just painstakingly going through that application and I ended up getting um, deferred and never really getting in officially until like a January admission or something like that. And so my family and I were like, let's explore other options. And my music teacher from high school, 
who I really loved and admired as well, he suggested that I look into Ithaca College in upstate New York because they also have a really great journalism program. And so I decided to apply to that and got in and went to go visit with my family. And we visited the first nice day of the year. For people who don't know, Ithaca is basically winter from September to May. Right. Um, but, uh-huh. but we, yeah, we went to go visit. It was beautiful. I really loved the campus. I liked the idea of, you know, actually doing a campus school as opposed to like a city school, even though I was interested in city living. But yeah, so I decided to go there and ended up having a great time. And through the journalism program, I became aware of alternative types of media, so not necessarily like traditional corporate media, but what's referred to as independent media, which can include, um, you know, places like Democracy Now! and The Nation magazine and a few other places. And I really loved that kind of journalism because it felt like it was more social justice oriented and talked about issues that mainstream media really wasn't talking about. And and yeah, it just sort of spiraled from there. My my interest in in those kinds of issues and um, and wanting to you know uncover injustices through different forms of journalism, like writing or multimedia, or you know through infographics or you know kind of playing with different mediums as Did well. Did you consider yourself political back in the day? Yeah, I my. <laughs> I'm laughing because um, it still goes on today. Our family conversations over the dinner table, whether it was holidays, whether it was just regular, you know, weeknight dinner, we were always talking about politics. Mm-hmm. It was just something that was just always, always talked about in my family. And the youngest in my family by a lot, my only sibling is eight years older than me. And so to participate in the family discussions, uh, I had to kind of be informed a little bit earlier than maybe, you know, a normal like 12 year old would need to be informed. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yes, we talked about politics a lot. Would you say that your family was pretty progressive and liberal? Yeah, I think so. Um, mm-hmm. They they definitely are. My parents especially are very open-minded people. They're very... Something I really love about my parents, actually, is that they are willing to be corrected and willing to be wrong. Um, mm-hmm. they, but they're open to the fact that they just don't know everything and they're willing to hear another side to something. Yeah, exactly. And that's... I'm realizing just how you know, maybe not necessarily rare, but how valuable um, a trait like that is. Um, I was fortunate enough to not deal with the issues that I feel like some people might experience in terms of having vastly different, you know, political views than their parents or family. And I didn't necessarily have that. So you felt very comfortable with your views once you left the security in the confines of your house. You could be out there and feel comfortable and secure and feel very good about what you believed in. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, there were, you know, there were times that my views may have differed from my family, but it was never met with hostility. 
if that makes mm-hmm. sense. It was always, you know, a recognition that I grew up in a different time than them. I am exposed and experiencing different things than them. Um, and so my, you know, views might be different from theirs. What's interesting is going to a place like Ithaca, which is which is a very liberal city, you know, there were a, a lot of things that I learned about that I didn't know about before I went there. I grew up in a very rural part of Connecticut that was a liberal enough place, but also had different views from me. Um, and so... Kind of off the grid a bit? Did you yeah. feel that way? Yeah, mm-hmm. it definitely was. Like, it's it's definitely like that... I make the joke. I actually just started. I just saw this show like not that long ago for the first time. But Gilmore Girls is a show that's based in like a picturesque Connecticut town. And my hometown looks very similar to that. So I think it's if you can imagine that kind of like, you know, um, there's, you know, town meetings, there's a town green, there's, you know, um, like not a lot of opportunity to to meet people outside of that framework. Um, that's basically where I grew up, which is, you know, a nice place to grow up, but also limiting in terms of, you know, maybe different perspectives or, or even just people who don't look like you. There wasn't a lot of people who weren't, you know, white middle class um, in my town. And so that, you know, that makes for, you know, a limiting of experiences and viewpoints and things like that. So going to a school like Ithaca really expanded your world on many different levels. Uh, And so when you were there, and as I said, you majored in journalism, under the guise of what? Did you want to be a reporter? Did you want to be a muckraker? Did you have a sense of what it was you were going to do? Sometimes it really is confusing when you've got a lot of options. It is. It definitely is. And, you know, I don't think that I... Looking back now, you know, I'm 33, going to be 34 soon, which, you know, isn't so far removed from that, but I guess is in a lot of ways that I did feel as though I had to know what I wanted to do. And and when I was in college, it definitely was that I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write about different issues from the perspective of of trying to uncover injustice and um, and things like that. And it's really interesting how that morphed. Like, I don't even want to say changed, but it definitely, as I got older and as my circumstance changed for various different reasons, it, you know, I ended up kind of moving from journalism into more broadly like communications work, um, which mm-hmm. we can, you know, talk about. But yeah. When I was in college, it was definitely like I wanted to be a journalist and write. Um, It's really funny how that started to change. How did the social justice aspect fit into all of this? Was that just more of a natural act for you, that marriage? I think so. And I think so much of it had to do with the communities and networks I found myself in as a result of being involved in this. Um, it's called the Park Center for Independent Media was the sort of program I was involved with at Ithaca. And through it, I had really, really meaningful internships with different Um, independent media publications for a few summers while I was in college. And, you know, when I was working there was when I got really introduced to other journalists focusing on topics like this. Um, 
and also, you know, people who were whistleblowers or who were politicians speaking truth to power or activists or, you know, community members who were like deeply impacted by, you know, things like um, climate change and education and racial injustice and things like that. And so it was being around those people and being in those networks that, you know, really solidified my like deep passion and interest for that kind of work. So when you graduated, what was your first big job? And did you feel based on what that was that you had kind of died and gone to heaven? Uh, no, (laughs) (laughs) I had like a very weird path, actually. I, so as, as senior year was approaching in college, I, really was interested in writing about our education system. I'm not entirely sure why I wanted to write about that, but I did. And I had this, what at the time I thought was a brilliant idea to do something like Teach for America for a year Uh and kind of immerse myself in the education system and then write about it from the inside out was sort of like my grand plan that I was thinking about. For anybody who's applied to Teach for America before, it is a very rigorous application process and involves many different steps. And I made it to the final step, which is a um, group interview with a, you have to do like a five minute teaching simulation. And I did not do well at all. (laughs) And I actually think that's the best thing that's ever happened to me, to be honest. So I I ended up not getting into Teach for America, which was very good uh, for many different reasons. And I kind of felt lost. Like at the time, you know, I graduated in 2007. And although I didn't have the same experience that I think people who graduated in 2005 and 2006 felt in terms of like, you know, the job market was particularly horrible. It still was a a fairly horrible job market in 2007. And it was, um, the journalism job market in particular was also pretty bad. So I, you know, was worried about it and, you know, ultimately decided that I wanted to, I kind of wanted some adventure. I wanted something different. I wanted, you know, I had um, studied abroad the first semester of my senior year in Ireland, and I really loved living abroad. So I looked into opportunities to teach abroad because I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, I can write about education issues while I'm, you know, uh, teaching in another country. And in my research, I discovered that Korea in particular, South Korea, was a great place for people to go, for people from native English-speaking countries or Western countries go and teach English. And you have your flight paid for, you have your housing paid for, you make a good salary. And so I ended up looking into that and decided to do that. So I ended up moving to Korea to teach English for a year and a half. It was a fantastic experience, and I do not regret it for anything. Um, It definitely was different than I anticipated it to be for a variety of different reasons. Um, And I tried to kind of write about education issues while I was there, But, you know, sort of went through a variety of, you know, different kind of like personal 
experiences that made it hard to focus. I didn't have like the best principal that I was working with. Um, so it was just kind of different reasons. You wrong more than you thought maybe? Was that yeah. an issue? Yeah, it was. And, you know, while I was there, actually not that long after I left, my mom was diagnosed with uh, uterine cancer. Mm. And that was definitely really, really hard. Um, she was diagnosed very early in her cancer. So they managed to catch it early and, you know, had surgery and was okay, um, is okay. Um, and then less than a year later, so while I was still in Korea, she was diagnosed with colon cancer. Mm. Uh, during a colonoscopy that she had, they found a cancerous, I think a few cancerous polyps. So she had to mm-hmm. have surgery again to have a small portion of her colon removed. And um, and again, they found it very early. She is fine. I'm very, very grateful for that. But what was interesting is that, you know, to get two different types of cancer so close together this raised some flags for her doctors. And so they wanted her to go through genetic testing to see if there was a genetic component for why she had gotten these two types of cancer. Um, And it turned out that she has a genetic condition that's called Lynch syndrome. And Lynch syndrome makes you more susceptible to certain kinds of cancer. Um, Uterine and colon being the two most common. Um, There's... There's other ones like kidney cancer and stomach cancer, um, ovarian cancer, things like that. Usually it has to do with your gastroenterology. If you're, you know, female at birth, you also can have issues with, um, with your reproductive system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we um, discovered that. And my only sibling, my brother, was tested. And he is negative, thankfully. But while I was in Korea, they told me that when I get back and after I get a job with health insurance and all the rest, that I um, should get tested as well, which I did. And I found out that I am positive for Lynch syndrome as well. Mm-hmm. Um, which Lots of process. It was a lot, yeah. When I got home from Korea, I moved to New York City where I've always wanted to live basically my whole life. And I started working for a nonprofit. I wasn't doing communications work yet. I was doing more like, um, you know, administrative uh, assistant duties. And I didn't love it, but I loved living in the city. I loved having a job that actually did have good benefits. They did not pay well, uh, but they did have good benefits. So I was able to get genetic testing done and have that taken care of. And it was really interesting because I kind of found out about it when it was all kind of colliding with several things going on in my life. So I was living with a partner at the time who we had been together for almost three years at that point. I was turning 25 I was thinking about graduate school and was applying to graduate schools, looking to hopefully, again, stay in the city. And 
my relationship was in the process of ending, to be honest. It was like on its downward, uh, downward slope. To negotiate. I definitely don't think we broke up because of my diagnosis, but I do, I did notice a change in myself um, when it happened because it was very, it was very jarring. Like I didn't necessarily really understand or know what it meant. I had kind of really put it out of my head um, up until getting tested. And I was also under this like false assumption that because my brother was negative, that I would probably be negative. Um, when in reality, the way it works is that each of my mother's children had a 50-50 chance of having it uh, like independently. Regardless of gender. Yeah, regardless of gender, regardless of really anything. It was it was basically just a coin flip. Mm-hmm. Like both of us could have been positive, both of us could have been negative, you know, it could have been really any combination. And the, the you know, the combination just happened to be um that I was positive. And, you know, I had a doctor at the time who was very aggressive, was giving me a lot of information all at once, which is great. Information is really helpful and useful, but the way that she went about it was really hard. Like it, it was very, it didn't seem like she understood that she was talking to a 25 year old um, because Mm -hmm. she was saying things like, Oh, have the kids that you're going to have. And then we'll just take everything out. Which is just such a weird thing to say to someone. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so all of that happened. um, And I should say that, you know, having having something like Lynch syndrome does not mean that you will get cancer. However, your your risk factor for getting cancer is significantly higher than the general population. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, for example, because my mom had colon cancer, which you also kind of have to think about the family history of cancer as well, my likelihood of having colon cancer also, when the general population, I think it's, you know, don't quote me, but I think it's somewhere around like, you know, less than 1%. My risk is like 83%. Wow. And the same thing for uterine cancer, which is, which my aunt also had uterine cancer when she was in her 40s. And because my mom was positive, her, you know, biological sister, my aunt, um, also got tested and also is Lynch syndrome positive. So that kind of explains why she had uterine cancer so early. Mm -hmm. So because she had uterine cancer, because my mom had uterine cancer, and I found out also that Ants from like way back in my bloodline also had uterine cancer. Like there was no escaping it. Yeah. And I think that's what was so difficult was like this impending doom inevitability feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, that had to have an impact on what it was you were going to do with your life. Trying to deal with this heavy duty piece of news and then trying to figure out where you are in the world. Correct. Absolutely. It, it's, you know, there was a part of me, like I mentioned, in terms of, you know, wanting to do journalism, there was a part of me that 
wanted that life, that wanted the like, you know, writer life, the life where you could be going to go anywhere you wanted and that sort of like free spirit kind of way of living. And that just didn't feel possible anymore. Like we, mm-hmm. you know, we live in a country that does not have universal health care. So the so I had to have a job that had health insurance. And I really understood the kind of gravity of that because when I when I went to started doing grad school, I actually left my nonprofit job to attend grad school. I decided to do it full time and, you know, took out loans and did some part time jobs and things like that. But nothing was able to give me health insurance. So there was actually a period of time where I you know, wasn't going to the doctor. I wasn't getting my screenings. And I, I I think I did that because I was just so angry about the whole situation. Oh, sure. If that makes sense, like just avoidant. Like I definitely did the whole like avoidancy, you know, if I don't think about it, it doesn't exist. And, and to be honest, it's kind of easy with my circumstances. I know some people who have my same genetic condition who, you know, have been deeply impacted by it. And I haven't had the same thing happen with me. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily affect me on a day-to-day basis. It's not like a, it's not like. You're um, not defined by it necessarily. You've got that very personal, very intense personal part of your life. And then you've got the public part of your life as in affecting change, which I'm curious, during this time of dealing with the physical part and the heavy-duty physical part of your life, you're also dealing with, like I said, a national criminal justice organization. These are two very big things. Yeah, it's funny. For grad school, I decided to focus on urban policy. And I did that because, as I mentioned earlier, I'm I was interested in education reporting for a while. And I realized that I didn't want to limit myself to just talking about education. I wanted to talk about the intersection of education with economic injustice. I wanted to talk about the ways in which communities are um, are constructed and, and how they interact in order to try to better their circumstances. I wanted to talk about the way race plays into that. And so that's really why I went into urban policy. And, you know, I also wanted to look at, to your point, like things like women's health and, you know, access to healthcare, or I wanted to talk about reproductive justice, or I wanted, you know, and so I felt like I needed to um, do a program that allowed me to think about, okay, well, if I'm really interested in these different topics, and interested in, you know, the ways that we can, you know, work to create a better world for everyone. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I want to understand how policy works. I want to understand how laws are made and how even, you know, minor city council decisions can have like a really deep impact on, you know, the way people are able to live their lives in different places. And so that's why I did it work for you. It did work for me. And you felt that you had found your calling? Yeah, I did feel that way. Because, you know, when I went to 
Hunter College. They have a really great um, program there and they have great classes that talk about like diversity of the city and they talk about, you know, how to work with different organizations in order to implement changes. And I also, you know, found a fellowship that I could do where I could work with a community group and create, you know, new housing and sort of interact with people who have been disproportionately impacted by the justice system or impacted by, you know, racial injustice or these different circumstances. Did you feel that you were able to affect change on some level? Yeah, I... I think I learned something really important through all of that, which is that it's not like, yes, individuals can impact change, but it has so much more to do with like the community doing it together. And that's something that I realized and something I really wanted to take into consideration in terms of like whatever I was going to decide to do, I wanted to make sure that I was going to do it in a way that was true to um, the people most impacted, that was going to be, you know, an added benefit um, to support communities, that I wasn't going to do the, you know, the top-down approach to whatever it was, um, that I wasn't going to, you know, do the bullshit white savior complex kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I ultimately decided to combine my skills that I had developed in communications, whether it was, you know, writing or social media or, you know, relationships with reporters or, you know, what have you, with working for organizations that embodied this same mentality, that it's not that it's not about us helicoptering in, but instead, you know, developing meaningful relationships with with people and providing support and giving them the tools and resources in order to elevate their voices or, you know, be part of the process of changing circumstances and changing policies and providing support in the form of, you know, just just being there um, and being, you know, part of something in a meaningful way. But on the other hand, as I said in the introduction, we're not talking just cavalierly or glibly. I mean, that being a communications manager at the Association for Neighborhood and Housing Development which was working to win affordable housing and the quote being promote thriving, equitable neighborhoods for all New Yorkers. What a fantasy. How did you feel about what your contribution was to that? Did you feel that it wasn't an exercise in futility for you? I did feel good about my contribution. I wanted to make sure that my job was about elevating other people's voices. Um, mm-hmm. And those who may not have been heard. Yeah, or who were just being deliberately silenced, right? Uh-huh. Just like that, uh-huh. you know, no one is voiceless, but really, you know, it's just that their voices have been excluded from the conversation or right. they, you know, 
uh, don't have the means at, by which to, you know, be part of the conversation or, or whatever the circumstances are. And so I made sure that the work that either my organization was doing or our communities were doing that we wanted to, you know, elevate, whether it was put stuff in front of, you know, policymakers, put stuff in front of press, put stuff in front of the people who do, in fact, have power, um, right. unfortunately, in our system. I wanted to make sure that my job was about, okay, how how do I take this information that we're getting here and put it in a way that's going to catch the attention of the people who are in power um, mm-hmm. in order to... I think so. We managed to make some changes, which was really great. There were some infographics that we put together um, that got the attention of the mayor at the time. We were sharing the protest photos and videos in front of, you know, housing courts all over when the the eviction moratoriums and things like that were going on um, that we wanted to make sure, you know, our council members saw. We um, talked about the racial disparities happening with coronavirus um, and the frontline communities that were being the most deeply impacted and that... Right got the attention of national media. And that was really great um, to be able to share that with a broader audience so that people could understand what was going on. Are you hopeful? Um, it depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, with everything that's, I am hopeful. I, I think the short answer is I am hopeful. I am also I acknowledge the ways in which it's very difficult to be hopeful. Like, I think, you know, no shade to any other generation, but I think, you know, I'm a a millennial. I think that millennials have had (laughs) enough once-in-a-lifetime events happen in our lifetimes to, like, fill a million lifetimes. And that's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's really, really hard to grapple with sometimes well there's a hopefulness and you're not going to and you're not not going to give up that you can see that your work is not for naught yeah I think this work is really important um I think just the the act of trying to promote the important work that others are doing if we can it's funny it, it may seem you know small and it's definitely not the same as doing the work itself but if we can make others aware of the important work that's going on in communities with you know good nonprofits and stuff like that that is definitely really important and you know I hope that I hope that it serves its purpose in terms of helping other people be hopeful because good things are kind of going on or changing hearts and minds or, you know, whatever it happens to be. It's not a question of bitter, but you believe that you can still affect change in spite of what is going on around us and in spite of the fact um, of, of, of what year this is and, and, and how many more Mount Everests we have to climb. That sometimes, for somebody like me, it can be just very disheartening because I've been there and done that and I've been there and done that. And, you know, what goes around comes around. I mean, not that I couldn't do what you're doing, but I would hate to think that I would be approaching it with any kind of a cynicism. 
I think for me personally, it's the minute I really, really kind of give up or say like, this is useless or, you know, this, you know, nothing's changing, which I think, I think there's a lot of people who feel that way right now. And I, and I don't think that's an unreasonable way to feel right now, considering what's been going on. But for me personally, I just, I can't let that happen to me because then otherwise it feels all for naught. And I just, you know, I want to have a family someday. I want to continue living my life, try to find joy where I can. You know, I felt the same way about discovering about my Lynch syndrome. Like I could let myself be paralyzed by the real distinct possibility that I will get cancer at some point in my life or... Uh I can do my screenings every year. I can stay on top of it. I can find joy where I can and, you know, try to make the most of my life as it is. And and I do think I specifically chose a profession where I feel like I am helping people or, you know, a social justice driven type of career because that makes me feel like I have purpose. And, and so I just want to continue to live in that and foster that. But the Lynch syndrome is always with you, whether it's overt or covert, and whether you have any control over that or not, in spite of the fact that you just didn't learn about this 10 minutes ago. I'm curious about the impact of that on your life today. Yeah, I used to be, you know, when I was in grad school, as I mentioned, like the whole sort of avoidant um, mindset that I kind of took about it. There was a certain point where I, I felt like I needed to gain some control over it. And so I started writing about it and I just Uh started talking to other people who had Lynch syndrome as well and trying to gather information. And there are moments where it comes up much more. Like for example, I had to, you know, I have to get a colonoscopy every year and a colonoscopy is not, for anybody who hasn't done this procedure before, it's it's not that bad. Like, you, it's sort of an in-and-out procedure. You're asleep the whole time. But it's... And yeah, it still isn't pleasant. It's still not pleasant because you basically have to, like, fast for, like, a day and a half beforehand. And you have to, like, drink the, the nastiest stuff yeah, ever. Right, right. And, you know, you sort of get the added bonus of like, you are going in to like, see if you have cancer, like you do, you are kind of doing it to like, see if there's going to be any cancerous polyps. And it's, you know, it's less likely, since I'm younger, it's going to be more likely as I get older. Um, But there is still that possibility. So it's, you know, I don't want to like be cavalier about it. It is a stressful process. There was a period of time where I hadn't done it in a while because of, you know, not having access to healthcare and this and that. And I had my annual screening kind of scheduled for around the time when I was like in a new relationship, like a, you know, a few months long relationship Uh at Uh the time. And so, you know, that ended up being this, you know, conversation with this person. Mm -hmm. That you weren't ready to have or didn't necessarily feel that you wanted to have? As I've gotten older, I'm very much like, this is my deal. If you can't Uh hang, like, then, yeah. 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, I thankfully found a partner who was like, cool. What time, (laughs) what time is your appointment? Like I, I'll take the day off and bring you and, you know, pick you up and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, be there for you. And, and he was, and that was really special. And I think now it's going to be a little bit more part of my life because I, I do have to think about it when it comes to starting a family, like whether or not I, you know, want to uh, explore the potential of not passing on my mutation um, through screenings or IVF or, you know, kind of other options. And that's something, you know, me and my partner will have to decide together. And there was a long time where I thought that I was going to have to make these decisions on my own because I was, you know, single for a really long time. Mm-hmm. But you also but, don't, have, don't have to make the decisions tomorrow either, correct? Yeah, we, you know, we we don't have to make them tomorrow but what's interesting is like I think now that I'm entering into my mid 30s slash like you know soon enough my late 30s I do have to make these decisions because I there will be there there will be either a preventative surgery that I will have to do or a you know or you know kind of continue to screen but potentially risk getting uterine cancer so it's it's sort of one or the other at a certain point how have you been able to make it work for you i'm not being dismissive of the syndrome but that's just one part of who you are and then there's this other part of how you've affected change and tried to make life better for other people in terms of why can't they have rich full meaningful lives I'm glad you say that because I, I do think there was a period where I felt very defined by my Lynch syndrome in particular. And I know there's a lot of um, really great activists who have kind of personal circumstance change. And then they, you know, become really impassioned by focusing on either activism or maybe writing or something else that's really about that, you know, particular mm-hmm. personal circumstance. And there was a part of me that was like, should I be doing the same thing, you know, because I can speak to this unique experience. But I think I didn't I didn't want to. And as we talked about, like, be defined by it. I I like being a multidimensional person. Everybody is a multidimensional, right? Sure. There's so many sure. different identities that we all have and different, you know, passions we have or needs. Um, I do feel a bit scattered sometimes, like maybe I should focus a little bit more, even just going from working. The first nonprofit I worked for when I moved to the city was a women's nonprofit. And then the second one was a housing nonprofit. And now I'm working for a criminal justice nonprofit. And part of me feels a bit scattered, but I think I approach it as my role is to be a communications professional is to is to apply you know skills and tools that i have learned through my nearly a decade of experience doing this work in terms of how to communicate complicated subjects in a way that is not just you know understandable for anyone but also is meaningful and impactful and can create change where it needs to So I try to, yeah, I try to just sort of enjoy 
enjoy that I get to learn about a lot of different things. I get to interact with a lot of different people. I get to like do fun things like, you know, listen to this podcast every week and come up with like fun ways of of telling people about the amazing women that, you know, you speak to every week. At the risk of so stating the obvious, I mean, you do a fabulous job. Maybe it's just for you, very much a natural act. Yeah, it it does feel like a natural act for sure. I love, <laughs> I feel very special that you use that phrase with me um, because I hear you use it with the other guests so much. It, it does. And I love the way that this podcast has like fit into my life. I started working for you in 2015 and this became like a lifeline for me to get through grad school, to be honest. Um, and, and it's now turned into this, you know, really, you know, fun way for one, me to continue to feel connected to you because I've grown to be so fond of you and feel connected to, again, another thing that feels I'm sure you feel this way, like feels bigger than me, feels, you know, feels bigger than both of us. This ability to get to know all these women out there, everybody's got a story to tell and everybody's got their feelings and everybody's got their connection in life and what it is that they need for themselves. And I think that's a huge takeaway from, from this show and one that you're very much able to capitalize on. It's going to sound horrible, but this is such an easy gig. Like, it's really just like I get to listen to you have these amazing conversations with people. And and exactly to your point, like, I get to learn about women who have done anything and nothing. And it's really wonderful. Like, there is something, like, inherently just special about kind of listening in on the conversation between two people who are just talking about their lives and talking about you know, what they're doing, because any of it can be special to anyone listening. I think that even though many of these women will acknowledge that they've done some pretty cool stuff or impactful stuff, on the other hand, I think there's a different perspective when they listen. Again, I'm not deifying the women that I interview, but I don't know that I was sent off into this world with a very strong sense of self. I think I kind of created that on my own. And I'm not saying that in a bragging sort of way. It was like, I need people to know who I am, but it's not going to be because I sat down and wrote a great novel, or it's not going to be because I was able to direct a film. And when I asked that question during the conversation, what made you think that you could do those things? It really comes from, from my gut. You don't hit a home run every time, but the fact of the matter is that these are women that you may not have heard of, but boy, what a takeaway there is from them. Yeah. And just so anybody who's listening to this conversation uh, knows, Sandy loves what she does. That in and of itself is just so special, like just to be part of that. Yes. You just know what to do. These are the natural acts for you. And I know what my natural acts are. I'm really grateful for that because this came in my life as a much older woman. I had a great run as a newscaster and working for 1010 Winds and other places. But you know what? What was that song? Is that all there is? And, and no. And again, I didn't reinvent the wheel. But the fact that I got to meet these women and then to be able to work with somebody like you, that's even more of a blessing. As we wind this 
down what is it that you think you might like to do that you haven't? I went through a bad breakup early in my 20s, my mid-20s. And then I was single for a really long time. And I have met someone that I really love. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, we're figuring out what a future together can look like. And through that time being single, and I think I would have done this even, you know, if I was in a partnership really. But I, I do think in a way I am sort of excited that I had that time alone because I got to focus on my career. And I, I get a sense of who you are. Yeah. And I, I do have like a fairly clear trajectory for what I want. I would, I would love to run a a whole communications team for a nonprofit someday. I would love to manage and supervise people and sort of support um, up and coming communications professionals. But I think it's also okay to say, in addition to being excited about, you know, the potential for that in my career, I'm also excited for, you know, potentially being a mom someday. And I, yeah. I'm uh-huh. excited about that for once feeling like a distinct possibility in a way that I haven't allowed myself to think about yeah. for a long time. That you can exhale about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's out of your control. But what's in my control is the fact that you do a hell of a great job. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for it, really, Melanie. It's made this even better for me. Well, Melanie. I'm really glad we had this opportunity. I learned a lot. And I say this and it's said sincerely and from the heart that it's just wonderful to have gotten to know you on a different level. Thank you, Sandy. This has been so amazing per usual. Every time we talk, even when it's not being recorded, it's always (laughs) a very, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm talking to a second mom or, you well, it's just so easy. It's just, and it's it's easy and it's natural. But the one thing I have to say is, Jesus, Sandy, what took you so long? Well, I learned <laughs> from that. But you'll keep us in your loop, of course you will. And for people who may not be familiar with Melanie's social media stuff or, or some of the articles that she's written, get on the stick <laughs> and get with the program. <laughs> Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. <laughs>